the Linda Lindas. Oh, I'm not going to say it as well as they do. Good morning. Welcome to the show on Island 1069. It's called It's Too Early. I'm Gwen Filosa, broadcasting right off Duval Street in beautiful Key West, Florida. I'm super excited to have my guest this morning. She's an award-winning environmental journalist who has reported on water and climate change around the world. Her new book is The Sound of the Sea. Cynthia Barnett, good morning. Good morning, Gwen. Thanks for having me on. This is so great to have you. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, Get to start right out with the the book on seashells. It's called The Sound of the Sea. This is like a a very extensive, deeply researched history about seashells. What what inspired this? (laughs) It is. It's called The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. And the specific moment that inspired it was that I was giving a talk on one of my previous books at the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum in Sanibel. And I was out to dinner with the director and learned the extraordinary statistic that they had surveyed visitors to find out how much uh, visitors already knew about seashells. So these were mostly tourists visiting Florida with their children. And the survey revealed that 90% of respondents did not know that a shell was made by a living animal. Many Mm. people thought they were rocks or stones. And I I was so, you know, pretty disturbed by that. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it just, it just spoke to me. And it said something to me about the state of our world and, you know, our disconnection from nature. So I think that very night before I fell asleep, I was starting to think through this book. And I I just came to think of seashells as these great ambassadors to mm. what's happening to the planet, because we've always, humans have always loved seashells. As you know, the book opens with a Neanderthal walking the beach in Spain. And it's known that Neanderthals collected shells for reasons beyond food, that there was some kind of aesthetic impulse there. And so I really came to see them as as touchstones for, you know, to kind of draw audiences to to what's happening to the oceans and and of course to what's happening here in Florida. So that that was kind of the moment that got me started. I like that. And I learned so much. The seashell, I mean, a long time ago, was used as as money, as currency. Oh, yes. That is um, that is a chapter. So the, the book is organized around iconic seashells in human history. And, and one of those I knew had to be the money cowrie. Uh, it's called Monetaria Moneta. And it was used as currency longer than uh, globally, longer than any other uh, currency. So the first global money was not crypto, but mm. a but a cowrie, a small shiny white shell. And these were traded around the world for more than a thousand years. They were harvested in the Maldives and traded in bulk. You could trade them on a, on a string or in a bag. And kind of the the dark side of that story is that the money cowries ended up purchasing up to a third of the enslaved Africans who were forced 
to the Americas. And, and all throughout the book, because it is a, a story of history and, and humanity and nature, there is a darkness that is blended with the with the wonder. And and one interesting thing that happened in this book is that I I sort of set out to listen to seashells. The metaphor is listening to seashells. I set out to listen to seashells to hear what they were telling us about what's happening to the environment, but they also had a lot to say about people. So the lessons are kind of not only about the new environmental ethic we need, but, but really the different ways we need to treat each other in order to solve any of the major problems that we face, including climate change. So as you note, it's deeply researched and it's sort mm -hmm. of an epic, an epic human history as well as a natural history. It's, it's great, great work. Now, you've written several books, and you've won all kinds of awards, and wanted to ask you and go back a little bit to Mirage, Florida mm -hmm. and the Vanishing Water of the Eastern U.S. I mean, reviewers called, they compared you to Ra Rachel Carson's in uh, her Silent Spring, the groundbreaking calls to action, and, um, and you won the gold medal for best nonfiction, and uh, it's been called one of the top 10 books that every Floridian should read. Tell us about Mirage and tell us about The Vanishing Water. Sure. So that, that subtitle haunts me now, right? Because Florida's water isn't vanishing. <laughs> we mm. have, mm. we're facing rising seas. But the, I'm, I'm still proud of that book, and it's still used in a lot of college classes. And I'm thinking about, I can't believe I'm going to say this, I'm thinking about doing a 20th anniversary edition of that book because it doesn't deal enough with climate change. But the point of it, Gwen, was that at, at that time, it made the case that the great water wars of the American West were shifting or spreading to the American East. And that, and that was the case. And it is, it is a book about the fact that we, you know, we, we set out, Florida's great problem was too much water at the time of settlement. We, we set out to get rid of water and we got rid of too much. So no, you know, no, the only good swamp was a drained swamp. Mm. You know, you, you and the Keys know all of this very well, the extent to which uh, wetlands were drained and mangroves were taken out. Those actions harm us during drought. And that book, that book was published during the last major drought. Mm. Um, that that was happening in Florida. So that all of those actions hurt us during drought, but they also hurt us during times of too much because with all of these drained wetlands, of course, there is no place for the increasing rainwaters to go. Um, we're we're lacking these areas to clean up water, the natural buffers we need to protect us to, from the rising storms and so on. So yes, my, my first book was all about the freshwater cycle. Mm -hmm. And over time, I kind of saw this arc of books. So the first two books, Mirage and Blue Revolution, were all about freshwater 
Then I wrote uh, Rain's biography, Rain and Natural and Cultural History, which was all about the water in the atmosphere. And now I've turned to the ocean. So it sort of feels like a nice, a nice completion of the hydrologic cycle. Or when you put humans in, it's actually the hydroillogical cycle. Because when you insert humans into that system, um, things don't things don't look the way they do on those on those nice drawings of the hydrological cycle that you see in school textbooks, right? Um, so yeah, this kind of completes that cycle for me, and I I do hope to co- go back to that first book soon and and update it for the modern moment and the modern challenges. Yeah, you've you've written a, a trilogy on water. It's it's amazing. Like you you've covered a lot of ground. Um, <laughs> right. Wanted to ask you about Florida's signature springs. Um, how are they? Mm. Doing? How are they doing? The signature springs are doing poorly, Gwen. Um, as you know, we have about a thousand freshwater springs, more than any other place in the world. They are extraordinary. They bubble up from the Floridan aquifer, and they are these incredible turquoise bowls. Mm. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas called them bowls of liquid light, which is such a beautiful phrase. Yeah. And the problem is twofold. It's over-pumping of groundwater and um, increasing amounts of nutrients going into the spring. So it's similar to many of the problems you're having in South Florida. And in fact, an interesting thing that I think a lot of even Floridians don't know is that we, we used to have freshwater springs bubbling up in, in Biscayne Bay. Some mm-hmm. of the early um, ship logs talk about, you know, sailors being able to fill up their fresh water supplies right there in in the bay from spring. So over time, again, as we've drained too much from the aquifer and and now for you as sea rise um, comes in and and here in North Florida, especially over pumping for agriculture, I should say I'm I'm dialing in from Gainesville, everyone. So the overpumping of groundwater and sort of, um, you know, the the combination of of too many fertilizers and pesticides are really doing a number on the springs. It's it's funny because sometimes when a newcomer comes to Florida, and this is the case with so many things, right? A newcomer will come down to Florida and say, "Oh, this is incredible! I've never seen anything like this," and they and they love it, even that, even if it's green with algae or or covered with, um, you know, some kind of muck. It still looks beautiful if you've never seen one before, but that's sort of a problem if you don't know what they looked like, say, 20 years ago when they truly were, or 50 years ago when they truly were bowls of liquid light. And I guess going back to that hydrological cycle in this, um, these four books that I've now written, I, I think if there's one thing that really stands out to me as a lesson, it is that every single thing we put out in the world comes back to us somehow in water, in the environment. Every action we take on the land also comes back to us in in the water and in the in the environment so whether that is 
destroying wetlands, um, paving over too much and taking away the ability to, to drain uh, floodwaters. Every action we take has, has a, an equal reaction somewhere in, in the world around us. And that is really coming back to harm us now. Yeah, I've, I've um, gotten to see a couple of those springs up near you on the river. Near yes, I, yes. I was just taken aback, and they're so yeah, beautiful. they're they're amazing. I'm they so are, they're, and many of them are still beautiful. You know, tubing the Itchituckney, especially some of the first magnitude. If anyone gets a chance to come up here and tube the Itchituckney or see Manatee Springs, it is really a glorious sight in nature. But I will say that a lot of them right now are just, you know, too too dark to to be able to see those those bowls of liquid light, or too covered with algal slime to to really be able to enjoy. Yes, and um, running out of <clears throat> excuse me, running out of time. But you teach environmental journalism at um, the University of Florida now. That's you've you've trained some of uh, the Miami Herald reporters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that Alex Harris, the climate change reporter for the Miami Herald, was in my very first class, the first time I taught environmental journalism, and now she comes back to UF every year to talk to the students about covering climate change and the. The really great thing that's also happened at that time, environmental reporting, as you remember, used to be the black sheep of any newspaper mm-hmm. or radio station. We just, you know, could hardly hire an environmental reporter, much less get those stories covered. And now it is a very important beat. A place like the Herald sees how important that beat is. The New York Times has a whole climate desk. CNN, again, has a climate desk. So, um, this field is becoming stronger in the profession of journalism. So that's a great thing. And I can I can tell you this warms my heart. There are a lot of students in journalism college right now who are keenly interested in this beat and in covering the environment. And, and I would say across the campus, students are really interested in climate change and what's happening in water and students going into all kinds of fields are specializing in climate and environment. They feel like there is there is nothing else they should be working on right now. And so there's something sad about that. And there's something very inspirational about that, too. So, yeah, I'm excited to be teaching the next generation of environmental storytellers great that's great cynthia barnett thank you so much for coming on this show i i I think you've been up you're it's not too early for you it's not too (laughs) early i often write at five and i am i am i'm disappointed to say almost all the live events that were scheduled for the sound of the sea were canceled because Mm -hmm. of covid it's been so hard for for book authors in in covid as in so many professions but I'm hoping I will be coming to the Keys in the spring. I love the Keys, yeah. and I, I devote a chapter to the Queen Conk. And so uh, I hope to. to see you guys in person. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, the Sound of the Sea, everybody. It's all about seashells. Check it out. Cynthia, have a great day. Talk to you soon. Gwen, you too. Thanks again for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you all for tuning in this morning to It's Too Early. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. Everybody stick around. Going to have some headlines and your weather forecast 
today. I think the weather's going to be beautiful. I'm just going to guess right now. Uh, but we're going to play a song. Liz Fair. Love this song. Supernova. Stick around, everyone.